I'm very honored to introduce you to our speakers this evening, Peter Suber and Kyle Courtney. I'm thrilled that they're both here with us tonight, and I appreciate their generosity in sharing their time and their research with us. You have bios for each of your speakers on the back of the agenda, um, but very briefly, uh, Peter Suber is director of the Harvard Office for Scholarly Communication, director of the Harvard Open Access Project, a faculty fellow, fellow at the Berkman Center, and senior researcher at the Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition, otherwise known as SPARC. His most recent book is the award-winning text, Open Access, which is one of many reasons why Peter Suber is considered the de facto leader of the worldwide open access movement. Kelsey, I'm sorry, Kyle K. Courtney is the copyright advisor here at Harvard University, working closely with the library to establish a culture of shared understanding of copyright issues among Harvard staff, faculty, and students. He also works with the Office of General Counsel on intellectual property issues associated with HarvardX and edX. He also teaches up at Harvard Law School, training first-year law students on the fundamentals of legal research. I encourage everyone here to learn more about our speakers and the Office of Scholarly Communication by visiting our website, which is printed on the front of your agenda. So tonight, we're here, we will hear first from Kyle and then from Peter, and then we'll have time for questions. When asking your questions, um, please wait a second. I have a microphone that I'll bring around to you so we can capture everyone's question um, and we can make sure everyone is heard. Um, but again, thank you all so much for being here with us tonight. I welcome Kyle up to the podium now, but please join me in welcoming both Kyle Courtney and Peter Suber. Thank you very much. Uh, there we go. I just got to hit this button and we'll be ready to go. Uh, again, my name is Cal Cordy. Again, I'm copyright advisor. This is a relatively new position actually at the university. Uh, relatively new as in I am the first one and it's been several months on the job already. Um, and I'm happy to come here today to kind of share with you uh, my passion uh, about uh, this topic which I get the privilege of working with Peter and the rest of the staff of the OSC uh, dealing with which is copyright issues. Uh, additionally, my background is both librarian and lawyer, so I kind of um, fusing those both together in this kind of interesting area. Um, so copyrighted the OSC is, is a new system where we're creating kind of a copyright advisory network to work within both the libraries and the community at large, including students, faculty, staff, alumni, to deal with a very important issue in our times, um, copyright law and how it's impacting into the digital age. Um, and so we're going to be talking a little bit about that tonight. I'm just going to be talking about some of, kind of the highlights of the work that I've been doing. Um, but the first one is actually uh, we did a community-wide kind of celebration on something in the copyright law called fair use, which I'm sure you may have heard about or have read about. Um, it's an important aspect, I think, a fundamental to universities' missions. Uh, one of the first things I did was celebrate something called Fair Use Week. We kicked it off uh, in February. Um, with a series of uh, lectures, blog posts. Um, we invited scholars and experts from around the world to contribute to our new blog. We also had a panel of experts on fair use uh, from around the region to come and talk about this. And the intent here is to celebrate something <coughs> that the educational community, I think, should have the most knowledge of, but I think even more so the students that are on campus, the faculty that are on campus, and the alumni that are spread out um, all over the world, that this is a right that is not just for educators and librarians, it's a right for everyone. Um, and so the libraries, though, I think should be the holders of that kind of fundamental vision. Um, you know, my mom always told me I was special, but Congress has actually told me that I am special because I'm a librarian. Librarians have rights that are not given or afforded to other folks. We have rights to make copies. We have rights to preserve scholarship. We have rights to make 
preservation uh, decisions. We have rights in certain cases to digitize works. Um, in addition to that, I think that we should be the holders of the knowledge with regards to fair use. The fundamental mission of libraries and the fundamental mission of scholarship is tied together in a very important way. So how do we go about uh, quoting from a textbook or a poem or including an image in our dissertation or our thesis? We do that because of fair use. And so I think it's a kind of an idea that we celebrate that here for a week. Next year it will be launched nationally, Fair Use Week. It will be celebrated by some of our peer universities. Um, and we will have events on campus, and they will have events on campus, and my dream is to have some kind of streaming live multi-campus thing, but we'll see what that comes about with that. But additionally, um, I like to put libraries on the forefront of this role because I did a little survey the year before I started here at the Office of Scholarly Communication when I was at Harvard Law School Library, and it turns out that most of the questions from alums, faculty, staff, visiting scholars, et cetera, about copyright came to the libraries first. And the reason for that is because we hold the books, the data, the resources, uh, the photographs. We have the archives. We have all the materials which they have questions about. Can I use this? Am I capable of accessing this? Where can I use this? Can I republish this? Most of those questions went to libraries. So it, it seemed to me that libraries have this level of expertise on the subject matter. We have 73 libraries at Harvard. That's quite a, a large amount, and, and I feel that because they already have the expertise in the subject matter, layering the expertise of copyright law um, should be within all of our wheelhouses. Uh, the future of libraries and access is digitization. Um, we're seeing more and more of this happening, uh, not just in the field of you know, common e-books that we can buy off of Amazon or Kindle, but also in our scholarship. Um, so we developed this kind of advisory service to fill this need to fill this gap and put them in the hands of the subject specialists, which very much I thought to be libraries. So I formed a, a new group. It's called the Copyright First Responders. Um, and this is not, this is not everyone. Um, this is most of them. But right now, I'm training 15 librarians at 15 different libraries. Mind you, there's 73, so I've got some more to go. But the idea is I'm training them. We're taking like an internal copyright for librarians class, where we're studying copyright law. And more importantly, we're not just studying necessarily the theory behind copyright law. We're studying practical copyright. The idea that we receive certain types of questions at these libraries every day and that we should be in the hands of experts on that. I'm training these folks to be experts. This model is kind of a, it's a different model than our other peer institutions are using um, where there's one copyright office and the questions come in there. I'm saying let's rely on the subject expertise that we have. Half of these people have law degrees. The other half have PhDs or masters in their fields, sitting in the, in, the, in the rooms, getting trained on this. They already have that subject expertise. Let's teach them about copyright law, and they'll be capable of answering questions from students, faculty, staff, and alumni. And I think that's important. Again, practical copyright stressing what they hear every day. And there's a theme with a lot of these questions. And some of the themes that come up in, can I use this work or not? And, that's why we're relying heavily on fair use. But some of the other themes are, um, you know, how do I get rights? Where do I go to get rights? Um, where can I go to get clearance? Can the library give me permission? So it's been interesting. So this course, it's, I don't like to call it a class. You know, no one wants to, they're taking a class. I call it copyright immersion. So we meet weekly, we train, we read the latest cases, we, we train on the, um, the laws themselves, and then we kind of workshop conceptual ideas about questions that we're getting um, from experts. We have invited panelists come in. We have notes and class. They actually do homework. Um, again, I don't call it homework. I'm like, oh, what was our class readings this time? Um, but the idea is that they're the experts. One of the areas that, that we're uh, dealing with 
in this class and also that we're dealing with uh, nationally is also something called orphan works. And um, this is an important issue and one of the ones that's kind of, um, uh, that I'm focusing on is that archives, special collections, libraries, uh, not just at Harvard, but all around the world are filled with stuff called orphan works. And orphan works is an original work. It could be a photograph, it could be a book, it could be something along those lines where you cannot track down or even know who's the copyright holder. But you need to know because you want to maybe scan in their work. Maybe you want to seek permission to copy their whole book. But you cannot track this down. This is an amazing thing. Imagine this idea that a library wants to scan a, a set of works so they can offer it to the world, so they can let scholars from around the world have access to it. Well, you can't do that without permission for some uses. If you do that without permission for some uses, you may be opening yourself up to a treasure trove of infringement liability, um, which you want to avoid. So the idea is that we have all these works. What are we going to do with them? How are we going to track down these people that own this? Now, this happens for a lot of reasons. Sometimes the publishers will go out of business. How are you going to find them again? Sometimes it's because the lifespan is so long. Life of copyright now is life of the author plus 70 years. That's potentially you know, 140, if you have a very long life, maybe longer, years of keeping the paperwork up necessary to understand who owns this. So there's been some movement in here, um, both uh, domestically and internationally, to deal with these works in this particular way. And I think one of the more frightening surveys that came out was the British Library, uh, you know, our counterpart on the other side of the ocean, um, large, large collection. They said nearly 40% of their entire collection was an orphan, were orphan works. Which means they would be unable to track down the publishers, unable to track down the authors, unable to get permission should they want to do something like that. That's a startling number. So in order to avoid that, the Copyright Office held some roundtables down in DC. I went down there to represent Harvard and the 73 libraries. Our archives and special collections are filled with these types of works. Um, and so we talked. There was a lot of, I had more fingers wagging in my face from publishers than I usually am used to. Um, and they actually put some of the transcripts online and they kind of had accused us of hiding behind fair use. There was some wild language in this, and which is great is that because we have open government, we can track this kind of stuff down. But I found myself explaining, like, no, this is a right. We all have this. And like, we're libraries. We're not you know, crimson pirates. We're information professionals. We're not trying to steal your works. And I talked about how we were in a time vortex. We've been dealing with the orphan works problem in the US since 2005, when legislation was proposed, and it failed. Then 2008, and legislation was proposed, and it failed. I kind of said, hey, we're in a time machine. Can we actually do something this time about it? but maybe we don't, shouldn't do legislation. Maybe there's some other way. Um, so we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about how fair use, which I'm emphasizing, may be the answer. So there's been some, there's been some fun times in dealing with orphan works, but that's a, an area that would be a shame to have all these libraries filled with all these works that could potentially be a, a, a great boon for scholarship and for our students, staff, faculty, uh, and alums to have access to by scanning them in, but we're fearful of this infringement. So that's kind of where uh, I'm at with orphan works. Another kind of area is, as I said in the beginning, fair use. During fair use week, Kenneth Cruz, who is uh, probably world, most of the world-renowned copyright expert I'm aware of, um, said fair use is of greater importance now, probably, than it ever has been before. Um, and he said that because of issues dealing with libraries and orphan works, commercialization and fair use, issues with e-books versus in-print books. Um, there's a lot of litigation about fair use that's happening right now. In fact, just yesterday, 
a very big decision um, regarding uh, Hathi Trust versus the Authors Guild came out. The Authors Guild was actually suing to end a program that allowed uh, blind and print disabled people to access full text works. Uh, they had scanned in these works, and the one, part of the mission of the American with Disabilities Act is to provide them access to this. And fair use was another reason why they should have access to this. The Authors Guild actually sued to end that program, which is an amazing thing. Suing to prevent a database of books for blind people. Um, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough road to hoe, um, but it's that idea that this is actually happening. So fair use is of greater importance now than it ever has been before. Um, and for those of you that, I'm not going to get into the legal details of this, but the idea is that fair use is part of the US code. It's an act. It's a right that we have and that we can use. When we discuss it in libraries, we don't use it as a defense. We use it as a litmus test. We use it as, should we scan this? Are we capable of scanning this? What would the fair use for factors look like? And they're a balancing act. And basically, you're balancing the potential marketability of the work versus, should we allow someone to use this for scholarship, teaching, research? Um, without fair use, we couldn't quote in our dissertations or our theses. We couldn't include pictures or, of, uh, of art if we're writing an art dissertation. A lot of things that fair use allow, comment, criticism, teaching, and scholarship. And so we need to maintain those rights. Um, with the fair use, uh, with the copyright first responders group, you know, I'm not getting into the factors, we are studying the most recent cases. And what we're doing is we're sharing this knowledge with the community. So if I train these 15 librarians at their 15 libraries, then they become little hubs and spokes at their own libraries. And they can help those people. And it's kind of like training the trainers. And the idea is by studying these cases, by creating a culture of understanding of copyright law, of fair use, and how important it is to our community here at Harvard. Um, so we're studying the Google Books case. We're studying the Happy Trust case. Um, Georgia State E-Reserves case. This is a case where a university press publisher sued a university library. Things, walls have been broken down. So um, this is the time for us to step up and, and, and study this. We Faulkner literary rights. A quote was used from a Faulkner novel in a movie and they sued about it, even though the quote was clearly Faulkner's quote and they used the word and they even said it was Faulkner. They still sued. So this, you know, this litigious society, uh, we need to shore up and I think libraries are in the best position to shore up and kind of be the experts in this arena. Um, and there's many other cases and, and um, interesting stuff that we're studying there. And that's just one. The other side of the coin and part of my job, which I, I really love and find challenging, is the uh, HarvardX uh, work that I've been doing. So HarvardX or edX, because as you know, or I don't know if you know, but I hope you know, edX was an organization that was founded by Harvard and MIT together um, just, geez, only two years ago, not that long ago. Um, and we're offering classes online for free in the tense of we're taking the wealth of knowledge, the expertise, the experience, the scholarship, and we're putting that online for participants to be taught worldwide. Now, this is not for credit. It's, it's called a MOOC, M-O-O-C, Massively Open Online Course. And the intent here is to kind of share the wealth. Um, but there's big copyright challenges with that. Uh, for those of you that may have taken classes in this very classroom, um, there are certain protections in here that you have in face-to-face -face teaching that are under the Copyright Act. You're allowed to show movie clips. You're allowed to show films and art and discuss them with the class. Once you move that online and start taping it, then you may be distributing that without permission. And it's, it's definitely not an educational exception because you're not enrolled students getting course credits. Um, so you lose some of those protections. 
that potentially could have problems in the copyright arena. So I worked very closely with the Office of General Counsel and we developed a policy where we tried to create the idea of, all right, we need to follow the fair use guidelines. Um, one thing that resulted from this is, and this is kind of a preview to Peter's talk a little bit, is that open access articles and scholarship were very important to these MOOCs and especially to Harvard X because we could access this kind of information from the scholars for free and not worry about paywalls or licensing or, or copywriting. Um, the other part of it is that I saw this as a big opportunity again for Harvard libraries. Um, these uh, librarians had the expertise in the subjects and the research that were being done for these classes and so we created a Harvard Library cop a Harvard Library X copyright team. We had syllabus experts and specialists that were dealing with the syllabus because there's no reserves in a MOOC. There's no online, there's no syllabus or anything like that. And the museum staff, this is one of the amazing parts. Libraries and museum staff, instead of doing their usual role, which they still do, of being the expert and the guidance to the resources themselves, they're actually stepping out in front of the camera. So the faculty member is sometimes interviewing uh, the librarian or archivist. This happened in the Neuroscience X class, which was offered last year, where they went to Count Way Medical Library and looked at the collection there. This is coming up in two incredible Harvard X courses, and I guess this is kind of an advertisement for them because I worked on them, but History of the Book is coming up, uh, where some of our most treasured books in our collections are being um, unveiled uh, to the world in a way. And there's another one called Intangible Things, uh, sorry, Tangible Things. <laughs> they're not intangible, they're very tangible. Um, <laughs> and where the uh, history is told through a particular object. And so we have the faculty expertise, and we also have the librarians and archivists appearing in front of the camera talking about this. And some of the most magnificent works we have from our Houghton Special Collections, from Widener, uh, from the Law Library, and uh, many other libraries as well contributed to both history of the book and tangible things. So we have those challenges as well. I'm saying that the library is meeting them head on. And lastly, one area which I think is of interest just to the public in general, but also impacts libraries, is the idea of the, the, the swirling mass, which is ebooks, licensing, copywriting, contract law. Now, this is kind of an, it's impacting libraries in a way that I didn't foresee at the time period, but the evolution of ebooks has cost libraries a little bit. And let me explain this. There's something called the first sale doctrine, which basically says if I buy a book or a CD or whatever, then I can give it away. I can give it to someone else. I can sell it for a higher price. I can sell it for a lower price once I've bought and purchased it. And that is codified in the U.S. Code and in the law. So entire industries are based on this. eBay sells copyrighted works, you know, used items all the time. You have used record CD bookstores. Uh, when I say used record or CD stores to my students, they have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about a lot of the time. And, um, you know, the VHS I don't even say anymore. But these words, you know, these exist. You can spy these because they are used. So let's say you took a class where you had to purchase The Sun Also Rises. You know, you have your wrinkled copy, it's in your office still, you had it when you were in college. Do you own that? Well, yes, in the fact that you own it enough that you could give it away to somebody else, you could sell it on eBay, or you could, you know, sell it for a higher price or a lower price. It's entirely up to you. This is how libraries operate. We buy a book, and then we lend it thousands of times. We do that because of the first sale rate. But if you downloaded a Kindle copy or an iPad copy of The Sun Also Rises, do you own that? No, you do not actually own that. This is what's amazing. You're actually licensing that book from someone else. They are selling you a license. And the thing is about that is that that means they can take it away. Electronic works, including e-books, are typically sold subject to agreements, license agreements, contracts. 
that look less like a sale and more like a limited license. So if there's no sale, there's no first sale doctrine. Well, how do I mean this? I don't actually own a copy of Microsoft Word on my computer. I lease it from Microsoft. I pay for the option. If Microsoft thinks I'm soon doing something bad with that, they can reach into my computer and take it away or shut off my access. Same thing with ebooks, and this has actually happened. If we believe we are purchasing these ebooks, then we should be able to sell them or give them away. No, no, the license says you cannot do that. And if they suspect something has gone wrong, and this happened with a copy of a George Orwell novel, they will remote delete the book off of your Kindle. They have every right to do that under the contract. That little thing you click when you download an ebook, you're agreeing to license it. So you do not own it. How does that impact libraries? If we're buying tens of thousands of ebooks every year, we're not collecting that in the traditional sense. Libraries have this traditional mission to protect cultural history, heritage. We are preserving so that scholars can access it in the future. If we leave a vendor or we have some negotiation breaks down, that vendor can thereby take all of those ebooks from us. Even though we've paid for them, we don't own them. So this is true of anyone that's publicly doing this as well. You may be led to think when you go to Amazon.com that you're buying now. It says buy now. Buy now with one click. If you buy ebooks, they will come. You're not actually purchasing them. You're not actually purchasing them. This is taking a, this is taking a hit on all libraries, not just Harvard libraries. But as the ebook arena gets bigger and bigger, we'll be less likely to collect this. So then you think, okay, well, what's the next step? How do libraries last? Maybe we can have something called digital first sale. Potentially. Imagine you could have a used MP3 store or a used ebook store in the same way you have a used record store or a used CD store. Uh, eBay of used digital materials. Well, courts have struck that down. And the intent there is because the First Sale Act said, I bought The Sun Also Rises, and I can give it away to a friend. And when I give that away, I'm exercising my first sale right, but I don't have a copy when I'm done. When I download an ebook and it's in a PDF format, I can reproduce five, six, seven, eight, a million copies, and I don't give up my original one. So the courts have basically said it's this type of digital in, uh, this type of digital sales is not available yet. First sale was not thought about in the digital arena when it was created. So in two weeks, the USPTO is coming here. They're coming to Harvard Law to hear roundtables directly on this topic, and I will be up front along with everyone else in the Copyright First Responders group to advocate. We think libraries should have this exception. We should be able to collect the scholarship and the e-books and preserve them and not have them taken away with the intent of preserving this for use by the students, by the faculty, by the staff, by the alumni in the future. Because if anything, libraries are cultural institutions. Uh, I'd like to think of us as the holders of forever. Um, so this would have, hopefully uh, impact that and that way we could have a market just for libraries. I'm not asking for everyone, but maybe just for libraries to start. Um, last thing, in 1908, this type of uh, licensing agreement, they said, was hateful to the law from Lord Coke's day to ours because it was obnoxious to the public interest. Uh, Lord Coke wrote The Institutes of the Laws of England, one of the most influential books regarding common law. Uh, he was also the person who prosecuted the uh, gunpowder conspiracy and the Guy Fawkes Fox. So he, he knows what he was talking about when they're saying Lord Coke wouldn't like this. It's obnoxious to the public interest that we can't actually do what we want. We can't make copies of these ebooks. We can't preserve these ebooks. We can't print them out. We can't share them with anybody. I think that kind of goes against our mission in libraries. Um, so, that being said, I've run just about into my time. Um, I welcome your questions after, um, after Peter goes to the Q&A. 
Um, but thank you for your time, and I'd like to introduce right after me for uh, Peter Suber to come up and talk about open access. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Kyle. You can see why I'm very proud of the copyright advising service that we get to Harvard. It fills a void in our service to scholars and students that had been open for a long time. <clears throat> I'm picking a deliberately provocative title. We're not <clears throat> the wealth that we're sharing is the research output of Harvard University, the uh, peer-reviewed research by Harvard faculty. And by sharing it, I mean we make <clears throat> make it open. We provide open access to it. And let me say what I mean by that. The short. Oh, I should turn on this mic. One quick way to understand it is that open access is to scholarship roughly what open source is to software. It's free of charge, it's digital, and it's free for use and reuse. Here's how it was defined in the document that first introduced the term in this sense. Uh, here's my short paraphrase. Open access literature is online, digital, free of charge, and free of most copyright and licensing restrictions. Free of charge is not enough. If it were, we could say free access. And even if we did, free sometimes includes this last bullet, sometimes doesn't. So we have to have a definition to accompany the term so that everybody understands what we're talking about. Why do we want to make work open access? What's the point? The main point is that even affluent institutions like Harvard cannot afford to subscribe to all the peer-reviewed journals they need for their scholars. Harvard is the wealthiest academic library in the world. Even Harvard cancels titles every year for budgetary reasons alone. Every university library with less money than Harvard is worse off. Harvard has decried the uh, rise in journal prices for a couple of decades. Uh, I've collected its uh, public statements on this subject. Uh, it <clears throat> always surprises people when Harvard says, even we can't afford all of this, because other universities have been saying for just as long, we can't afford this. Uh, we're not Harvard. Well, Harvard can't afford it either. Nobody can afford it. Partly it's a problem of exponentially growing research, and we expect this to happen over time. Uh, knowledge should continue growing, and at some point it's going to be uh, let's say, unbearably heavy. But it's also a problem because the prices have been rising faster than inflation for more than three decades. They've been rising faster than health care prices for two decades. Open access also has benefits apart from saving the money of the people who buy this research for their teachers and students. It simply makes research more visible and retrievable. These are two different things. You can make work more visible so scholars can discover it, but if they click on it and they hit a paywall, they can't really retrieve it. And many studies have shown recently that even work behind paywalls is easier to discover now than it was about a decade ago. But you want it to be both visible and retrievable. By making it visible and retrievable, you increase the use of this research by other researchers. And by doing that, you increase the number of experts who are looking at it, scrutinizing it, trying to reproduce results that might be reproducible, uh, failing to reproduce results that are not reproducible. Uh, and then when the knowledge is actually uh, solid, applying it, citing it, building upon it, integrating it into the rest of knowledge. But beyond that, open access also increases readership outside the academy. And these are the major categories, but there is every other uh, possible user as well. 
Policymakers need access to peer-reviewed literature. Manufacturers, there are many research-driven industries that need access to research, and they can't afford it any more than universities can. Uh, journalists need it. Uh, when journalists write about climate change, and they write about some breakthrough article in climate change, they ought to be able to read the whole darn thing themselves instead of just getting a summary from a presentation they attended. And they ought to be able to put a link in their article so their readers can read the whole thing. Uh, there are many nonprofits devoted to causes where research is relevant. Uh, citizens and voters also need access. So it's both professional researchers and lay people. And for all of these reasons, open access increases the usefulness of research simply by making this available to people who can use it. So what can a university do that wants to promote open access? Uh, it can adopt an open access policy. And I want to spend the rest of my time talking about the policy we have at Harvard and what universities can do by adopting a good policy. Here's the heart of a good policy. First, launch an open access repository. A repository, in this sense, is just a database that holds the stuff that you want to make open to the world. Second, you want to adopt a policy to fill it, which is a policy to encourage or require the right kinds of authors to put the right kinds of work into that repository. And then you want to avoid getting in trouble with Kyle by uh, making sure you have the rights to make the work open. You can't just put it in there uh, and leave it uh, dark, and you can't just put it in there and open it up without regard to copyright. You have to open it up uh, in full compliance with copyright law. And finally, then you have to actually make the deposits and get the work in there. Now, here's how Harvard does it. Uh, we launched our repository in 2008. It's called Dash. Uh, I discovered today, uh, with the help of Colin, who's sitting in the front row, that Dash has, uh, in April of this year, Dash had more downloads of full-text articles than, let's say, it had more than three times the number of downloads of full-text articles than all the Harvard libraries combined loaned in the same month. Uh, Dash is not only open access, it's crawled by all the major search engines. You don't have to visit Harvard to search Dash. You can use any major search engine to search Dash. And the contents of Dash are preserved by the Harvard Library. Uh, I said there are four things. Two and three, Harvard does together. We adopted a policy and we got permission at the same time. And here's how we did that. Our policy basically says, <clears throat> we the faculty hereby promise to deposit our future scholarly articles in Dash, but we also hereby grant to Harvard non-exclusive rights to make those works open access. So when the time comes, the article is published and we get our hands on the file, we don't have to go to the publisher for permission. We don't have to ask the author at a future date to negotiate to retain that right. We have that right at the moment the policy is adopted because the copyright holders are in the room voting the grant of rights to the institution. If you're a lawyer, uh, it's important to note we get them to affirm this policy in writing afterwards. Uh, I can explain why if you need to know. Uh, and just one more thing about the policy. It includes a, an opt-out. It's a, it's a policy that makes open access the default. It says, in effect, we grant Harvard the rights to make all of our future articles open access, but if there's a particular case in the future where I don't want Harvard to have those rights, I can always uh, get a waiver and refuse to give Harvard the rights to that particular article. We don't allow standing waivers or waivers for all future articles. We allow waivers for every given article. So if you want 100 separate waivers or waivers for 100 separate articles, you have to make 100 separate requests. Uh, that preserves the default. The default is still on open access. Uh, without a policy like this, it has always been possible to opt into open access. It's always been possible for authors to try to negotiate the rights to make their work open with their publisher. Usually they fail, but they can always try. 
Uh, and if they have the rights, they always had the right to opt in by putting it into a repository. But inertia, difficulty, lack of time, kept authors from doing that. By shifting the default, we use Earth inertia in the other direction. Authors who are too busy to do anything else leave Harvard with the rights to make their work open. All we have to do is get our hands on the file. And that's where this one comes in. The expectation and the policy to put the work into Dash is not waivable. Uh, if you want a waiver, it only applies to the rights that you grant to Harvard. We still expect you to put the work into Dash. If you put it into Dash and we don't have the rights to distribute it, then we don't distribute it. We leave it in there. Uh, we only distribute the metadata, that is the author, the title, the date, and other things, so that search engines can help people discover that the article exists, but we don't distribute the full text without legal permission. And we're often asked whether we enforce this. Uh, do we twist faculty members' arms to get the stuff into Dash? No, we don't. Uh, we implement this part of the policy through expectations, education, incentives, and assistance. And part of the assistance comes from my office. We have people who actually help do this for faculty. We try to make it as easy for faculty as possible. They can deposit in Dash with a web form. It takes a few seconds, putting the rest of the burden on us. They can deposit as an email attachment, or they can call us up for in-person, face-to-face help. Harvard was the first university in the United States to adopt an open access policy. And before Harvard, there were only about 12 others, and all of them were adopted by administrative decree, not by faculty vote. So Harvard was the first university in the world to adopt an open access policy by faculty vote. Since then, far more policies have been adopted by faculty vote than by administrative decree. So we sort of changed the course of university open access policies. And many of those votes have been unanimous, but Harvard was the first to have a unanimous faculty vote. The vote at FAS was unanimous. The vote at the law school was unanimous. The vote at the School of Education was quasi-unanimous. Uh, there were a few abstentions, but no dissents. <clears throat> the vote at the uh, uh, Kennedy School was 98%. Uh, and we have significant supermajorities at the other schools. Harvard was the first university to have an open access policy that retained the rights necessary to authorize open access. And again, it's not as if these other schools are violating copyright, but they launch a repository and they encourage faculty to deposit, but then they don't have the rights to make the work open. What they have to do is go to publishers and beg for permission, and they often are turned down. Or they have to ask the authors, please negotiate with publishers in the future when you publish, retain the rights necessary to make it open. That's very hard to do. Pub uh, authors are intimidated by the prospect of negotiating with publishers. They usually fail. Uh, different authors ask for different things from different publishers. Some succeed, some fail. The easier and more effective way by far is to get those rights up front in the same form from every faculty member. We were the first to do that. And we're the first to offer this opt-out or waiver. And may that may look like a uh, loophole that weakens the policy, but the advantage of having a waiver is that it preserves the faculty freedom to submit work to the journals of their choice. Some journals uh, dislike open access so much that they wouldn't publish you if they knew you were at Harvard and you were going to make the work open access. By the way, that's never been tested. Uh, I think very few journals would refuse to publish Harvard work. Uh, the National Institutes of Health is a funding agency with an open access policy, and it has no waiver option. And basically, it challenged publishers. Uh, are you going to refuse to publish work funded by the NIH? The NIH is gigantic. It actually spends more money on research every year than the GDP of 140 countries. And no publisher called its bluff on that. Every publisher commented it. Even publishers who lobby hard against the policy said, well, we're not going to refuse to publish NIH research. I think the same would happen with Harvard research. But 
to enable faculty to vote for the policy and still realize that they have the freedom to publish in any journal, no matter what it thinks about open access, we include the waiver option. So our policy uh, shifts the default to open access in a way that actually matters in practice, but keeps freedom in the hands of authors to uh, accept or reject open access for any given article. Here are the schools at Harvard that have adopted open access policies and their dates. You can see all the Harvard schools, uh, except the medical school, has adopted one. The medical school will consider one this month. Uh, when I say all the schools, you might be a graduate of a school that's not on this list, but for policy purposes, it's inside a school that's on this list. The policies are implemented by my office, the Office for Scholarly Communication. And some of our staff is right here in the front row. Here's some boasts about how effective we are. These are the articles deposited in DASH. And we didn't start until 2008 when the first policy was adopted. Uh, we had very few deposits the first year. We were trying to teach people what this was all about. Uh, deposits started to rise. And then when people began to understand what this is about and when we got our staff together, they began to rise sharply. This last bar uh, is only solid for the first few months of the year because that's all the data we had. The rest is projection based on those few months of the year. In 2013, we had more deposits than the previous two years combined. And the projection is we're going to more than double what we did in 2013 this year. We're accelerating the number of deposits we're getting into DASH. This is a similar curve, but these are the downloads from DASH, not the deposits into DASH. And it's a very similar situation. As we taught the Harvard community what this was about, as we got our staff together, the number of downloads began to go up. We think the download rate closely tracks the deposit rate because once something is in Dash and open and crawled by Google, visible to everybody, people start to download it. People who want that thing find it through a search engine and then they download it. Again, the uh, uh, downloads in 2013 were more than the two previous years combined and the ones this year are on track to exceed that or to double that. I just summarized some of that. Let me just focus on the top one for a minute. We just passed the 3 million download threshold, which was a significant turn of the odometer for us. Just to show us. Yes. 3 million downloads of full text, not just 3 million visits to the page. It's possible to go to Dash, look at the page, and say, well, I'm not really that interested, and move on. That's not a download. If you, just, if you say, that's interesting enough for me to download the PDF, that's what we're calling a download. It didn't matter for us how you got there. A lot of our traffic does come from Google, but a lot of it comes from other places as well, including scholars who include links to the Dash copies in their own you know, websites, resumes, emails. Mm -hmm. Just to show how things are accelerating, our best three months for downloads are the last three months. There's a pattern. Uh, I mentioned this stat a minute ago. Discovered it today, so I'm still excited about it. Uh, this is a similar graph for downloads of dissertations, theses and dissertations. We're trying to provide open access to all of those as well. Uh, the policies at Harvard don't cover theses and dissertations. We're trying to encourage the deposit of theses and dissertations through other means without adopting policies to require it. And we're succeeding. We're getting deposits. And as we get deposits, we get downloads. And the download curve is going up sharply, just like it is for articles. This shows where the deposits are coming from. They're coming from all over the world. Uh, they're coming from every country, and by country we mean 
uh, either a member of the UN or a, a country with a unique uh, internet domain name. We even have downloads from uh, regions that are not countries. We have downloads from Antarctica. And the intensity of green is roughly the number of downloads. And you can see it maps roughly the intensity of research done in different countries around the world. Uh, we have this map online, by the way, in an interactive form. So if you click on a country, it'll show you how many downloads we got from that country. Uh, I want to give you a few anecdotes to show you what this means to people. When somebody downloads an article from Dash, we give them a chance to give us feedback if they are moved to do it. They don't have to do it. And we get a surprising number of these, up to five a day. And some of them are very moving. I could spend an hour giving you some moving anecdotes, and I'm probably going to spend too much time giving you a small number. But here's a small number. This is a small school that can't afford many journals. The teacher says, uh, open access at Harvard allows many first-generation minority and Pell Grant eligible students that would otherwise not be able to access information. Thank you for providing this resource, double exclamation point. Lecturer in South America. I hope this model becomes the norm. So do we. PhD student in Iran who doesn't have good access to literature. Very grateful for an article she found in Dash. From a medical patient, not a scholar, not a student, not a teacher, looking up something pertaining to her own condition, found something, shared it with her therapist. They both found it useful. I like this one because the teacher asks a very good question at the end. When an article is not open access, the language of restriction, which means the copyright statement that tells you what you may not do with the article, leads the reader to think that we cannot share it with colleagues in the field. Then we wonder why research takes so long to percolate into practice. Open access accelerates that percolation. These are the users of Dash. Here's an anecdote from the other side. We share stats with Harvard professors who deposit in Dash, and this one spontaneously wrote, Wow, in February alone, he got 193 readers in 44 countries. If you are a Harvard faculty member and you get stats, you're probably astounded by the number of downloads you get and from the geographic distribution of places. In fact, this would be the best incentive for people to deposit. The snag is it only works for people who have already deposited. Okay, just a little bit more on our leadership. In addition to implementing the policies at Harvard. We help other schools adopt open access policies. We maintain a continuously updated guide to good practices for university open access policies. Of course, it's open access. Lots of universities have used it, and we consult directly with them if they wonder why we did something this way, why shouldn't somebody do it that way. We try to be on call to answer those questions. And more than 50 universities around the world have adopted Harvard-style policies. There are other kinds of policies I mentioned at the beginning. Not all of them do it our way. But 50 of them, more than 50, have done it our way, uh, sometimes with our direct assistance, sometimes not. They just looked at our policies, they started with our language, and they voted it up. Uh, at Stanford, for example, uh, Stanford Graduate School of Education, a new faculty member introduced the Harvard policy, the policy adopted by Harvard Law School, and told the colleagues in his uh, faculty meeting, the Harvard Law School faculty just adopted this unanimously. And people were complaining, doesn't this violate copyright? Isn't there some kind of problem here? And as soon as they realized that the Harvard Law School faculty adopted it unanimously, they adopted it that hour without adjourning for a debate. <clears throat> and finally, an external review committee evaluating our work. 
said, we do this as well as anyone. That's it. Kyle and I would be happy to take your questions. Yes. There's a microphone going around. Um, JSTOR uh, would be an example of an alternate kind of strategy to supply uh, academic works. Could you comment on JSTOR? JSTOR is non-open access. It's digital. It's online, but it's not open. It's not free. Most peer-reviewed journals today in every field are digital and online, but not free. So in that sense, JSTOR is like most other journals. Okay. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's a competitor, except that it's not open access. Harvard faculty are free to publish in any journal they want. They can publish in journals that are collected into JSTOR. So there can be a JSTOR copy of a Harvard faculty member's article and a dash copy. By the nature of our policy, uh, we only deposit and distribute published articles, articles that have been approved by peer review at a journal. And that means the publisher has a copy somewhere, usually online. And we have an open access version of the same article online. So our, our articles in JSTOR journals coexist with the JSTOR versions of the same articles. Uh, we don't feel that JSTOR cuts into our business, our traffic. Uh, JSTOR might feel the same, uh, that is, it might feel that we're cutting into theirs, but uh, I don't think it does. I know that some journals do think that, and when journals do think that, they can ask Harvard faculty members to obtain waivers as a condition of publication. Uh, that's the publisher's right. We offer the waiver. If they want to insist on it, they could. It's important that publishers uh, rarely do that. Uh, fewer than this many publishers. Uh, systematically require waivers by, by Harvard faculty members. So they sit around their table and they decide how serious a threat we are to them and they have the means in their own uh, uh, disposal to stop us or to prevent their articles from becoming open through Dash and very few of them exercise that right. Uh, JSTOR is a special case because uh, JSTOR is not a publisher, it's an aggregation of publishers and the aggregation is trying to persuade the separate publishers to move toward open access. The uh, JSTOR organization cannot do that unilaterally. It has to do it with the cooperation of its member publishers, but it is trying to persuade them to do that. Yep. Hi, Peter. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm still not clear on uh, if, a, if a scholar here at Harvard publishes a, a paper in, let's say, an Elsevier journal, then they put a copy into the database in Dash, and Elsevier is one of these publishers that aggressively, has the reputation certainly, for aggressively uh, preventing the distribution of, of their printed material or digital material. How does that play out? I'm just not clear on, on how you guys manage that. It's a good question. Part of the answer is that Elsevier has mixed feelings about open access. Uh, it does lobby aggressively against open access policies by governments and by funding agencies. 
but its publishing contracts with authors give standing permission for the authors to put works into repositories like ours. Yeah, and it allows authors to do that without any embargo. It allows them to make it available immediately. Now, uh, that's the short answer. The uh, long answer is that it tries to make an exception for schools that have open access mandates. Uh, a colleague of mine puts it this way. You may make it open unless you must make it open, and then you can't make it open. Um, uh, that's kind of complicated, but we feel it doesn't apply to us because we don't have a mandate in the strong sense because we have a waiver option or an opt-out. <clears throat> but in any case, uh, Elsevier knows we do this. Elsevier's not complaining. Uh, and by the way, just as a footnote, uh, if a, an ISP like Harvard uh, posts content that violates somebody's copyright, the copyright holder can send a takedown notice to get it removed. Elsevier sent 23 takedown notices to Harvard last year. And all of them were for articles that individual faculty members posted to their individual websites. Not one of them was for articles in Dash. And uh, the uh, vice president for the library here at Harvard said the OSC and Dash are part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, that is, this is a legal way to make work open. And it's authorized by the copyright holder, uh, in this case the author, who has the copyright prior to transferring anything to the publisher. Uh, Harvard retains rights that Elsevier never touches, so we don't need Elsevier's permission to do this. But even if we did need it, we get it through the contract. Hi. Uh, I'm just visiting here from the University of Zagreb in Croatia, so our situation is very different. Uh, I just explained to my neighbor uh, before how little access we have altogether, so initiatives like this are amazing. But my question is, uh, as a professor at the university, for example, I published articles uh, and my university doesn't pay for open access, of course, and uh, my co-authors' university doesn't pay for open access. They ask us $3,000 if we want to pay ourselves for the open access. Of course, we couldn't. So our uh, scholarship was not very visible in these terms. Are you saying that if we publish in such articles, that if we as a university have something like you have here, that even this article could be put into the repository of the library and be accessible, or is Yes, this that's what I'm saying. Uh, there are roughly two large kinds of open access. One of them is distributed by the journal itself. These are open access journals. They need a way to pay their bills. If they're not going to charge subscribers or readers, they have to get funded some other way. One model is to charge a fee, the kind of fee that you were asked to pay. It's not the only model, by the way. It's only used by 30% of peer-reviewed open access journals, but it's one model. It's a fairly common model. But that's only one model. You can also make work open the way we do. Let the author publish anywhere, provided they put a peer-reviewed copy in an open access repository. They pay nothing to do that. And if the university obtains the rights the way Harvard does, then you don't even need the publisher to consent to the distribution. This is in the jargon, called green open access. Uh, open access through a journal is called gold open access. And you were trying to publish in an open access journal. You were trying gold open access. It's good when it works, but if you can't afford the fee, or if you want to publish in a journal that isn't itself open, you can always try green open access. Now, all you need for green open access are the rights to distribute the work and a repository where you can deposit. Your university doesn't have to host the repository. It can be anybody else's open access repository. And there are, call them universal or residual repositories for people who don't have one at their institution. 
And in Europe, uh, I would recommend you check out Open Air, which is sponsored by the EU itself. Hi. For all these faculty who are voting unanimously or quasi-unanimously uh, to um, embrace this policy, what's the, I know it probably is, there's a range, but what, can you give us a sense as a practical matter how much royalty income they're foregoing by making these articles that they've authored yeah. uh, available in an open way? I'm glad you asked. Zero. Uh, I should have mentioned at the beginning, part of the background for this is not just skyrocketing journal prices. Another part of the background is authors have never received royalty income for journal articles. The scientific journal article, the peer-reviewed journal article, is about 350 years old. And from the birth of the category uh, in the <clears throat> 17th century, authors were never paid. And it's partly because the first journals couldn't afford to pay, and then the later ones said, well, they didn't pay, we don't have to pay. Uh, but it's also because scholars are in a special situation. They publish journal articles for impact, not for money. And even before journals came along, authors shared their work uh, with letters or in presentations to academies, again, for impact. If they wanted to get credit for being first, or they wanted to uh, associate a good idea with their name, or they wanted to make a contribution to solving a problem. Scholars today write other kinds of works for money, including scholarly works uh, like books, but they write journal articles for impact, and they've never been paid for them. So open access, in principle, could apply to novels and movies and music, but all of those creators are typically paid, and so you'd have to persuade them that open access is somehow bringing benefits that exceed the costs. But for scholars who write journal articles, you don't have to make that case. It's all benefit and no loss. But then Harvard has to subsidize your office. So yes, what amount or what, what's the cost of doing all this? Uh, I'm only slowing down because I have to decide whether this is a confidential number. Uh, nobody has told me whether it's a confidential number. But it's a fraction of Harvard's annual budget. It's a tiny number. Uh, uh, that's uh, begging the question. Maybe you just get a picture of it by knowing we have a staff of nine and a half. And that's by far the biggest cost of the office. Uh, hosting Dash is trivial compared to this. In fact, hosting Dash is less than one half of the salary of one person in my office. Hosting a repository is not a big deal. Uh, backing up a repository with state-of-the-art digital preservation uh, is a big deal. Uh, but people are a bigger deal still. I, I was curious what kind of restrictions you might place on downloaders of the 19,000 articles. So can another library essentially download all 19,000 works and create their own repository? Yes. Okay, so no, essentially no restrictions then? On uh, there's one restriction. The policy itself says we, faculty, hereby give Harvard all these non-exclusive rights with one exception. We don't give you permission to sell it uh, for a profit. <coughs> and <coughs> so the library can do everything short of selling it for a profit. And we don't care. If another library really wants to download all the articles in Dash and make a separate collection of them somewhere, why should we care? Uh, it doesn't make our articles any less open, any less visible, any less useful. Uh, and because our articles are still going to be there, because we take care to keep them up, what would the point be? I mean, nobody's really motivated to download all of our articles and make a duplicate collection. They might be motivated to download 10 of them and publish them in an anthology without anybody's permission. Uh, they can do that, provided they attribute properly. 
Well, um, I have to comment. Yes. Uh, how do you enforce that? I mean, uh, somebody in Africa, I mean, we had like uh, some, uh, somebody that uh, popped up some fantastic maps of uh, Russian-made maps uh, from Africa, and they were all over the world, and nobody knew where they were coming from, the digital world. Well, it certainly happens a lot that digital works that the owner or the creator did not intend to be open leak into the Internet and are copied all over the place without the consent. But that's not the case with Dash articles because we intend them to be open. And so when somebody makes use of them, that proves to us that they're useful. It's part of the value of what we do. We don't mind at all. We encourage that. Yes. Oh, waiting for the mic. Thanks. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you have you expose metadata on the pages in order for the search engines to be able to crawl and index uh, the pages. Yahoo, Bing, Google, um, and uh, presumably, I mean, you, you you showed some of the, the measurement reporting, so you probably have you know perhaps some third-party JavaScript pixels on the site. Is it a concern? that the information on the site might be being used by, for commercial purposes on the internet, specifically, for example, for ad, you know, by advertisers like Google's DoubleClick or um, uh, some, of the other, some of the other web crawlers who are looking for demographic information? No. You're right that it could be used that way. And if Google wants data on traffic at Dash, and who's publishing and depositing in Dash, it has that data, and if it uses that data to sell advertisements and make a little profit for itself, first of all, we don't know about it, and second, we don't care, I don't think. Uh, when we put this commercial restriction on it, we're saying Harvard will not sell this for profit, and people who download it from Harvard should not sell it for profit, but what Google would be doing by selling ads alongside the content is not selling the content for profit. Uh, so, for example, it's fair use to quote from a novel in a book review in a newspaper with an advertisement in the next column. <clears throat> so the newspaper is making a profit, but it's not making profit by redistributing that work. Uh, the comment is fair, the comment is permitted. And likewise, anybody who downloads their content is doing it fairly, uh, permissibly, with our consent, even if they somehow sell ads next to it and make money from it. Uh, so Kyle, for the, in the case of orphan works, um, yeah. when you expose yourself to a claim by using an orphan work because you can't establish who holds the copyright, Does is there any entity or person who uh, has standing to make that claim other than the unidentifiable copyright holder? Yeah, so that's, that's the gift of orphan works, right? So that's, I've been making that argument saying, if someone does come forward and make a claim, well then the copyright owner is them and therefore it is no longer an orphan work because all of a sudden it's discovered. So yeah, that's the, th that's the thing. There's, I think there's very little risk associated with this. Now, um, the Society for American Archivists has a best practices in dealing with orphan works, which they've had since about 2009. And one of their things is, you know, if you put an orphan work online somewhere, put a little contact information at the bottom. And a lot of the times, if somebody does have a problem, they can contact you and you just simply take it down and now it's no longer an orphan work and you can recommend to them, hey, can you register this? Um, additionally, most of the time, uh, the archives that I've talked to say, people contact them and say, hey, that's my grandfather's. That's fantastic, thanks. Um, so a lot of the times they would not have standing to sue because they haven't registered it. And that's a prerequisite. Great. Sure. 
No, they did. Uh, they were just ruled as to not have associational standing yesterday um, uh, with regards to that. So I think it opens up it opens up the the ability for libraries to kind of exercise those rights. Great question. Hi, I have two questions. Um, my first is, what kind of uh, Harvard affiliation do you require for someone to deposit something in Dash? And second is, do you envision in the future? Um, combining any university open repositories so that they could be in one place that's searchable by one program uh, good questions the first one is you need a Harvard ID a valid Harvard ID so if you're already a graduate and you no longer have a Harvard ID you can't deposit in dash anymore but <clears throat> we're rethinking that <clears throat> there are a couple categories of people who don't have Harvard IDs who should that we might want to allow to deposit. Well, yes, but there are also uh, research fellows at Harvard who don't have Harvard IDs. <clears throat> uh, and then allowing alums to deposit would be interesting. Uh, we have to, we're still thinking about that, but as of today, everybody with a valid Harvard ID and only people with valid Harvard IDs may deposit, but that does include students, staff, uh, and faculty. And on the second, uh, there is such a thing as a consortial repository that serves a whole consortium of universities. They work just as well as individual university repositories. There's no reason in principle why every university should have a separate repository of its own. However, you don't need to combine them all into one place in order to search them all. They're all searchable as they stand. Uh, there are a couple reasons why. One is that they all conform to a certain uh, protocol which enables that to happen. So even before Google came along, this protocol existed, and repositories in conformity with the protocol existed. And basically, you could search them all without knowing what existed where, without even knowing which repositories existed. Uh, so uh, all these repositories functioned as if they were one grand virtual repository. That made it unnecessary for them to combine, and that was very good. You don't need a monoculture. You don't need a single database hosting all the world scholarship. Then you get into issues of control and ownership and uh, actually takedowns and uh, uh, fires in the building, things like that. So we have the robustness of hosting this stuff in many different places. But given the robustness, we could still combine separate repositories into consortial repositories whenever we thought it was a good idea. And we have time for about two more questions. So my question is about uh, your search results. Say you have a uh, article and you have the exact title and you go searching for it, and it might only exist in two places online, in your repository and in the paid journal. Yeah. How are the search results coming up so far, and are you moving ahead of the paid journals, or who does Google favor? I don't know whether we know. We know how many people visit our repository, how many people download from our repository, but we don't compare the people who download a given article from us with the people who download the same article from the publisher. Well, I'm not sure we have access to that number from the publisher. Now, we uh, don't necessarily encourage authors to download it from us if they have some reason to prefer the publisher's version. Uh, we cite the published version in the Dash copy. We link to the published version in the Dash copy. So if you arrive at the Dash copy and say, well, I'd rather go to the official version, we make it easy. In fact, it's the first thing you see. But if you want the free version, because it's free, you're right there already. <clears throat> so I would guess that most people who uh, read Dash copies instead of publisher copies 
do it partly because it's free or because it's the first one they found. If they uh, feel inclined to go to the publisher's version first because it's somehow more official, and then they hit a paywall, they're going to come back to Dash. And they should. That's really the service we offer. We offer access when the other copies are behind paywalls. Okay, there was one more up here. My concern is, um, I guess I'd like to know who were, who, who were the people in the copyright first responders group? Were they from the Harvard libraries or from libraries around the area? or uh, No, they were from Harvard libraries. So our intent here is to serve Harvard first, definitely. Well, I'm, um, just, I, I'm tired of, um, I mean, I'm saddened by going into my local library that is nearly empty mm. um, and hearing about library budget cuts. So. Are, is your group looking or talking about what is the library model for the future? Absolutely. How, how so, town and municipal so you know, budget's going to handle all this? And it's not just our budget where we can't afford journals. It's larger, larger aspects as well. I, one of the pleasures of my job is that I don't necessarily just have to talk to the Harvard community. In two weeks, I'm going to the American Library Association to advocate for library reform with regards to copyright for public libraries, for K through 12, for media libraries, for school libraries. I don't think that this is uh, what I'm doing here, I think, should be done at every library. We should be enhancing our values there. And you're right, budget cuts have hit libraries hard, not just public libraries, but state libraries, state archives. Um, the impact, I think, is coming from both the prices and pressures of the publisher, um, economic reasons. Um, so I do advocate outside of that group as well um, for this type of reform, because I think if we have the expertise and the knowledge and by working with these kind of new conceptions of libraries. So I don't know if anyone's aware of the Digital Public Library of America called DPLA. If you're not, you should look it up at some point. That's uh, kind of a, a, an interesting kind of free nonprofit solution where libraries are sharing their works um, and getting help from a larger community of librarians that they would never be able to do with before. So that's kind of part of that answer as well. Good question, thank you. Oh, please, yes. Uh, just a footnote to that. <clears throat> The kind of advising that Kyle is supervising here at Harvard and recommending to other libraries is a makeshift because the law is bad. As long as the law is bad, we have to have informed people advising patrons inside libraries. We'll never catch up. There'll always be more demand than supply for these educated helpers and assistants. The real solution is to make the bad law good. And Kyle is helping in that front as well. Uh, he testified copyright law. Uh, uh, we need to reform fair use, we need to reform first sale, we need to reform uh, uh, public domain boundaries <clears throat> uh, and orphan works. And Kyle has been testifying in Washington on all of those fronts. So in addition to helping patrons in real libraries in real time, uh, we're also trying to change the law so that that's less necessary in the future. I thought it was in interesting that the medical school has yet to sign on. Uh, do you have any explanation? Yeah, there are roughly two explanations. There's as much support for open access in the medical school as in the rest of Harvard. But the medical school is uniquely situated. Uh, first of all, most medical research is in medicine, and most funders of medical research already have open access policies. So there's a sense in which it's less urgent for the medical school to adopt a policy. Uh, the, I mentioned the NIH policy. The NIH has had an open access policy, a mandatory one, since 2008. 
uh, a weaker one since 2005. <clears throat> the medical school uh, gets much of its funding from NIH. Most other medical funders also have open access policies. Medicine is one of those fields where most research is funded. That's not true of my field, philosophy, for example, where almost none of it is funded. And most research funders see the logic of open access. Research funders, whether they're public or private, are charities funding work that they think is socially useful. And they're not selling it for profit. So their interest is in making it as widely available and useful as possible. So most research funders, including medicine, maybe especially medicine, already require open access. Medical school is used to it and sees less urgency. But the other reason why the medical school is uniquely situated is that it has roughly 300 core faculty and roughly 9,000 hospital faculty. And that's far more faculty than any other school at Harvard. And as you can tell from the early part of my presentation, the Harvard faculty, uh, the Harvard school policies have been adopted by faculty vote. So Kyle, I took uh, Terry Fisher's Copyright X uh, course, and uh, you're no doubt familiar with his map of, of copyright law and intellectual property uh, law. And I'm struck by your approach to the first responders, because it seems like much of copyright law is algorithmic in the sense of if this, if this, if this, then that outcome. Um, so why not an app? Um, <laughs> Uh, to, to do this because sure. it seems to me if it's more complicated than an app could deal with, then it's probably something that's requiring a lot of sophisticated judgment that would elude your first responses. Your sure. First no, response no. I, well. And uh, I actually um, got a library lab grant to fund, not an app exactly, but I, we called it a copyright and fair use tool so that you could go through the steps. But the, the problem with making those decisions is that I would love if there was an app that could do this, but there is so much gray area with fair use. And if you took copyright X, then you absolutely know. Judgments are different, different based on circuits, different based on courts, different based on the year, different based on the content, books versus movies versus. Um, so my, my ground floor thinking on this is if I go, if I'm one copyright expert at Harvard that's working with the libraries and I go to the design school or I go to the medical school and I take these kind of fair use kind of questions, I don't necessarily have the knowledge of that subject expertise, the field. How is it published? How are the publishers published? What are their contracts generally like? What databases do they use? How do they license these materials? The librarians have all that knowledge already. If I can build on the veneer of copyright law on top of that, and the only way to really do that is by soaking in it, really. That's why I call it copyright immersion program. Um, if I can build on that veneer of some kind of copyright expertise, then their judgments can be informed by their expertise and their subject matter and they can make these decisions. The intent isn't that they're one person making the decision, though. It's, this is a hub-and-spoke network. So if they are concerned about giving an answer, that's why we create this group, so we can workshop this idea. And you have me kind of at the top of the pyramid, and thankfully there's a nice dotted line to the general counsel's office, who I've worked very closely with, who wants this to happen as well, because we think they are probably in the best decision to make these judgment calls, which are human. They're very, these are human calls, these are gray areas. I don't think an app could do it. Um, they have a, there's a fair use checklist that exists online that, uh, that Kenneth Cruz actually developed. But you can load that checklist on the left or right with as many terms as you want, and then the checklist becomes meaningless. So I, I was fearful, and that's actually what created this kind of idea that there should be a job to do this, because I, the general counsels and I, and, and, and a former colleague of mine and boss, John Palfrey, were like, there's a human element here that we need. We need a human element to kind of interpret what actually is being used and to interpret the law and make a decision. 
based on risk. And that's really what I'm doing. I'm doing risk analysis. I'm doing a, a litmus test up front using fairies. Sure, the same question. It depends on the field. So if you're asking about you know, using law materials, I would expect that the law librarians would have a better grasp than the medical librarians than the, the photo librarian for the art library. Eventually, <laughs> this is the first cohort. This is the first time anyone's ever doing this um, so that we are planning on capturing all of the questions we get from all these libraries in order to develop a policy that is consistent. So that's the ultimate goal. Thanks for the question.